Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Everybody and welcome along once again to the show, made possible by our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today, as we near another exciting spring racing season, we have the company of one of Australia's preeminent trainers. The Hawks name has been synonymous with racing in this country for half a century, and Wayne Hawks has been a part of the family team that has won Cox Plates, Golden Slippers, the Victoria Derby, among hundreds of other top-level races, Octagonal, Lonro, Chautauqua, all became household names under the Hawks' stewardship. And Wayne Hawks is with us today. Wayne, welcome. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Sam. We are sitting here a little bit earlier than normal for this recording, so to set the scene, it's ten past nine on a Wednesday morning. But what time does your day start? You'd be about due for lunch right about now, wouldn't you? It's a, it's a, t- it's a tough gig being a, a racehorse trainer and the staff for that matter. So I don't just uh, ride 30, 40 horses and muck out their boxes. So for us, it's not just me. I'm the, I'm, I'm the coach, so to speak. Yep. So I've got a lot of uh, Indians that run around. So they're there at four o'clock in the morning. They're there at four o'clock in the morning and the first horses can roll out at Flemington at 4 a.m. The track's open from 4 a.m. to 9 a.m. Mm. It's certainly not uh, not easy. There's, there's no doubt there's some mornings there I'll have a sleep in and you know get up at 4.30 or 5 o'clock. It's not all champagne and sunshine like Derby Day and Cup Day and the like. There's some. So what is there a saying for this? Like, I'm not a racing person at all, but is there a saying for, you know, for every winner, there's a thousand unrewarded early mornings in the middle of winter? Probably not. But I suppose <laughs> what I think about is you're driving past someone like Baker's Delight and you're looking at those people going, I'm not the only one. Yeah. So there's there's stacks of people that are doing it as hard. And I suppose the advantage that I have is that I've got a 100 metre walk from the car to the tunnel at Flemington. Then it's good as gold. And then I've got about a 200 metre walk out to the tower. So I'm physically not out in the weather. I'm a little bit lucky from from, uh, from that point of view. Well, you've view. done your time. Well, I have. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt about that. we'll get to all that. But but Hawks Racing, what is the sum of its parts in 2023? Can you give us a, a little synopsis? You know, going to the to the end first, we've been there and done it with the big stuff. And I've now got a stable that holds 32 boxes in Melbourne and that we have about 25. Stable in Sydney holds 51 and there's always about 40 to 45 there. So we're never we're never full. And the, re- the reason why we're never full is if you're transporting horses from Melbourne to Sydney overnight, yeah. you need a box at the other end. So, so if you're full, full in both places, logistically, that makes it hard. Back in the day, and going back just quickly, because I'm sure you'll yeah. talk on this, back in the Ingham days, there was 235 on average all year round in full work in training in Metropolitan Racing uh, precincts. So to come back now and have 70 between two stables, I get to go and see my daughter who's 14 play netball. I get to go and do those things that I didn't get to do in yesteryear. Mm. So I'm 52. I'm long way off being retired, but what I missed out on in the early days, I'm certainly making up for it. It's funny, you, you, you go to the bush races and the racing.com will grab you and say, can I get an interview? It must be going to win because you're here. And I'm going, hey, hey, I've got 25 in work. I've got no excuse not to be in the bush races. So I do go to most of my uh, most of my race meetings. How many staff? Down here, there'd be uh, about 15, and in Sydney, there'd be about 35. So what, you could talk forever on this, but what horses are really set up to fly the flag for you this spring? Can you give us a little collection? The horse that, that, that is low flying, and he's a last start winner, is called Air Man, and he's probably my next best horse. He, he's a young horse. We 
paid five hundred thousand for him, and that and in, and in horse terms, at the biggest sale of the year when the average is three to four hundred, he wasn't an overly expensive horse. But in human terms, it's uh, it's a hell of a lot of money for an animal. Then we gelded him straight away. Now the people are asking why geld? Well, it's a bit like your dog, to be totally honest. I mean, you want to spay your dog because then it doesn't run around and think of other things. It's exactly the same thing. Male horses and male people. You get it. This time, this time of the year as well as we sit here on uh, you know in the early the first week of October on the eve of another big spring racing season as I said off the top does the does the pressure go up a notch this time every year or is it always there? it does it, it does to a point because at the end of the day when it's all said and done all the subcontractors that work for me they don't get paid anymore whether it's a great horse or whether whether it's not I like to think that use a Chautauqua name he gets treated this he got treated the same way that all the others do right now because there shouldn't be a just because you're just because you're a star you should get extra treatment I mean it's they're the actually the easy ones it's the the lesser light horse is the one that you're trying to win a couple of races with mm. so we try and keep it on a, a level playing field you as a person Wayne confident cocky maybe both and you have relished you know setting oh, you're the not record asking straight me, you're telling me well, I'm sorry no I'm giving you a choice <laughs> and maybe you need to be both in your line of work but, but but you have in all seriousness you appear to have an appetite for you know setting the record straight i suppose voicing your opinion on all things racing which i must say we love on on this side of the fence yep. on this side of the running rail sure but that's who you are at your core i've done a lot of media over the years and tv and radio and and to be honest i've probably done as much as any racehorse trainer ever has i mean i'm i'm not as famous as say gay waterhouse or bart cummings but i think i've done a hell of a lot of media and i do generally love it I, I i really really do love this side of the fence and the one biggest comment that i get pulled up on in the street is don't always agree with you but i love your honesty yeah and i love how you just tell it how it is because most industries are smokes and mirrors let's 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 be let's be totally honest and the racing industry is no different you know because there's a hell of a lot of politics involved in everything today i do like to set the record straight i do like to tell the truth I told a lie once um I said to a reporter, uh, the horse didn't do something, and it did, because I was asked not to by an official. And long, long story short, my father and I got fined $10,000. Kevin Sheedy actually said to me, because he loves horses, Hooksy, you got to say I don't remember. There's a million people got off murder for saying I don't remember. I can't recall. Yeah, I can't recall, Your Honour. So, uh, that so was, don't lie, just don't tell the truth. That that was what I took out of that many, mm. many years ago. And we just asked for a special gallop at Mooney Valley with a horse because Flemington wouldn't give us a, uh, a grass track to uh, train on. The officials said, yeah, come over, but don't tell anyone else because we don't want 20 horses coming across. We thought we could win the Cox Plate, and it was a horse called Viscount, and he just got sandwiched between Northerly and Sunline, Viscount. He got smashed, and he got beat five inches. So we nearly got away with it, but we were asked to say nothing. Then the reporters asked me on Sky Channel, and I said, no, 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 he didn't gallop here last week. He went to the beach. And then, uh, as I said, yeah, I just wished I had had Kevin's advice before I said the uh, magical uh, no. You mentioned famous racing identities. Your father, John, certainly one of those. Now, your love of the media... You didn't get that from him, did you? No, well, you're, you're well, uh, you're, you're well versed. Uh, no, not really. Um, he he's actually a shy person, my father, and and the people that genuinely know him realise that. Of course, he's got an ego. You couldn't do what he's done and not have an ego. There wouldn't be many people in the Hall of Fame that don't, that doesn't have an ego mm. with any sport anywhere. But he would rather shy away from things. He's a really hard worker, and he just keeps to himself. And his argument is. I'd rather let the horses do the uh, do the talking. So he doesn't. Octagonal came along and was bigger than big. He was he was for the people that weren't around then. He was like Winks. He yeah. was huge. He was black caviar. That took a huge toll. And as I'm sure if you ask Hugh Bowman and Chris Waller, 
the Winx factor, mate, they would have been tired after all that. It, it's draining. Mm. There's no doubt about it. Then Lonro came along and uh, the son of, and he was as good as his old man, and it was the same sort of hoo-ha with him. That was when my father went... Yeah, and just said, I'm going to take a big step back and myself and brother and so just uh, pushed up into the media. My father took a big fat step back and he was pretty famous for training the biggest string in the country and not turning up on Derby Day because he was sitting at home with two televisions, two VHS recorders because mm-hmm. we didn't have, uh, you know, Foxtel like we uh, we have it today. Yeah. And he'd sit home and he would actually control the ship from home. So it wasn't that he was hiding from people. It was just like he reckons he could see more and he would be there for race one because if you think about this you're going to Caulfield today and you're driving over the Bolty and you get stuck in the tunnel as we all do in Melbourne and you've missed the first two races whereas he's actually sitting at home watching every race and watching patterns of tracks and things like that. You're listening to This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers, a family owned business since 1934. So for as long as his memory stretches I reckon Wayne Hawks imagined a life in racing. We'll go back to the first steps right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Journey. It's made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives and decorated horse trainer Wayne Hawks is our guest today. Wayne, your childhood, where was home as a kid? What are the early memories of growing up? I'm an Adelaide boy. I was uh, born at Glenelg and Melbourne Cup winning trainer Mark Cavanagh was standing in the Flemington one day and said, ha ha, Bart Cummings and I were born at Glenelg in the same hospital. I said, hey. So I was born there too with my old man and my brother. I said, it was the only bloody hospital on that side of Adelaide. What are you talking about? <laughs> so that was Glenelg Community Hospital. I mean, the great man from Adelaide, Bruce McAvaney. I mean, I'm sure Bruce was probably born at Glenelg Community as well because anyone on that side of Adelaide yeah. went to Glenelg Community. So it was great life growing up in Adelaide. Dad was heavily involved in Glenelg Footy Club. He would go down there on a Thursday night after uh, he'd put the horses to bed. He, I would go down with him. I, I reckon I can remember back as far as being about 10 years of age. Go down to Glenelg and there were young Chris McDermott and uh, Stephen Kernahan yeah, right. and uh, yeah, Tony McGuinness, Tony Hall. There were just some great, great names. And this was the era where there was Platten and there was yeah. Motley and all that era of the uh, 80s slash 90s. They, they were the best of the best. There's no doubt about that because if you look at the state of origin, they were beating Victoria yeah. convincingly. So, so, so was footy the first love then, or was it right? Was it a mesh of the two? Big footy town Adelaide, but big racing town as well. It, it, it was probably a, a get out for Dad to go down there on a Thursday night to get away from the from the uh, horses and everything, and go down there Thursday night. Dad would never go to a uh, to a to a footy match because he always had a runner on a Saturday. And yep. if Glenelg was playing in a grand final, it would make the Adelaide advertiser that you know John Hawkes' beloved Glenelg's in the grand final up against Port Adelaide today, and he's going to go to Victoria Park races or Morfordville and see so players at the house or whatever over time. Well, it's funny you should say that. Uh, so you think back, Ross Gibbs, Bryce Gibbs's dad, Peter Maynard, Braden Maynard's dad, John Seabom, we called him, but now it's Seabom, and that's Emily Seabom's dad. Yeah, yeah. 
all these people played for Glenelg. So I had a quote Neil Barm, very incestuous uh, place, Glenelg, and the uh, Glenelg Football Club. And so Graham Corns, uh, Kane's dad, was uh, was the coach at the time. And Peter Maynard married Donna Campbell, and that's uh, obviously Braden's mum and dad. And Graham Campbell was the coach at one stage. And so it, it was quite quite an incestuous little uh, little town, but it was so good going to school. And I went to a uh, small school in Adelaide called Westminster. I'd go to school on Friday, and they'd say, what did you do last night? I'd say, well, I played billiards with uh, Stephen Kernahan and Tony McGuinness. And they're like, of course you did. I said, yeah, and Tony Hall came in late because he was a young, good-looking star on the way up before he did his knee. And they would come around for dinner after Thursday night training because they were all single kids. And, they, and I reckon I was 10, 12, and they were about four or five years older than me. So they would come around, and Mum would cook two roasts, and we'd have uh, two dinner tables. And then, uh, then they'd just hook in like, like a horse. They would eat like a horse, those fellas. And being single, they probably hadn't had half a good meal all week and so mum would just cook up a huge feast every Thursday night and then uh, they'd play billiards till about 9 o'clock and then daddy kick them out and say I've got to get up early and off they'd toddle and uh, that was that so walking around the football club with those guys I was half a rock star so show and tell you must have loved at school oh. what what sort of what sort of student were you growing up into your teenage years no, no. my care factor was about uh, minus zero and right. I uh, I got to year t- I did year 12 mum would make me go to school in an iron lung I had never had a day off school I, I could have the flu and the and she'd just kick me out the car and I'd go to school. Got to year 12 and I just had no interest. And, and a horse husbandry TAFE course started up in Adelaide. The first one had already started the year and mum had enrolled me in the second one. And I, m- I remember clearly, I was 16, year 12, and she said, you can go and do this TAFE horse, horse husbandry college thing. And I said, yes. So I've lobbed up to my mid-year exams and uh, was in the big gymnasium, as we all remember how it was, freezing cold. Yeah. And the uh, the main teacher in charge, and there was 100 kids in there for the accounting exam and he said write your name on it fill it out when you're finished you can have it was back in the day Pac-Man Space Invaders on your little handheld Super Mario even before Super Mario Brothers make sure it's on silent no mobile phones so what do you reckon I've done I've just turned it over wrote my name went to all the multiple choice A, B, C, D and went A, B, C, D just did it Anyway, you know, however, didn't look at any of the questions, turned it over, and I was finished. So a three-hour exam, two hours and 56 minutes in, I started playing that sort of game. So, of course, before you know it, the whole gymnasium's erupting in a laugh, and uh, I got kicked out. So uh, that was about my... I didn't get kicked out of school. I got kicked out of the exam, and I said, well, to be fair, if 99 other kids are laughing at me and I haven't done one thing wrong, what am I in trouble for? So that was about... I reckon that's about the extent of my school. So the late Colin Hayes, the property... Lindsay Park. Your yes. old man sets you off there for a bit of, I don't know, work experience, if you like, into the enemy camp, if you don't mind. Well, that was... Dad had run second to Colin Hayes, David Hayes's father, uh, for the last... the previous eight years. Dad had asked David Hayes, who was his foreman for his dad, can me, after my TAFE course, go and do the two weeks work experience at Lindsay Park? David said, perfect. It was the year... At, it must have been 88. I think it was the year Atalak won the Melbourne Cup. So C.S. Hayes was a superstar, and he was in Melbourne for all of the spring. He came back week after the Melbourne Cup and he nearly drove his Subaru in the fence because when he saw John Hawkes' son riding in on the pony he nearly died well he didn't like that well he wasn't well he didn't know David there was no big blue but David had forgotten to tell him so and I remember the second morning and Colin Hayes' nickname was Sugar Lips because mate he could sell sand to the Arabs and ice to the Eskimos and those great lines and he was he was honestly called Sugar Lips so what happened was I 
he, he pulled up in the Subaru, opened the door, got out like Starsky and Hutch as an older man, come over to me and said, son, when you're getting on that horse, he said, I don't want you to ever get on that horse like that ever again. He said, what you do is you get hard up against the horse's front leg, put your, and he, and he swore, he said, put your ass into the, into the horse's shoulder. Because if it kicks out, you're better off to get a kick from really close range than far away. And I never, ever forgot that. And I legged on this horse and uh, literally me and my pride limped away. So what happened was, we are about, I'd been there for about eight weeks, nine weeks, and I was only going there for two weeks. David Hayes's foreman underneath David was a man called Tony McAvoy, who's a famous trainer now. Yep. Tony had the uh, terrible task of walking up to me, and the line was, we're going to have to let you go because the Queen's got her nephew and the and the great-great-grandson's niece and, uh, you, you know, all that crap. So, and, and to be fair, the, all those people would come out to Lindsay Park. I mean, it was a, I mean, if it was a, you know, a registry there of the people that had walked yeah. through that joint, it would have been phenomenal. They let me go, so um, I thought, well, you know what, working in the enemy camp, as you called it, for nine weeks, I just wished at 16 years of age I'd gone there when I was 26 because it was all just a bit of fun and games and uh, not enough work. So the work would go on to a flow company, I think, a vet surgeon, a saddlery firm, a bloodstock company where I think you might have been a salesman for a time as well. So this was a, a detailed and varied apprenticeship then. You that, haven't, you haven't that, missed much. That your old you, man's you, put you on You have done your homework. So have what, I missed anything? Not really. Um, float company, did you say? Yeah. Yep. I'd finished that, and Dad had moved to Melbourne. There was Robert Sangster, who owned it. His dad owned the English Soccer Pools. There was Bob LaPointe, Pizza Hut Kentucky Fried Chicken Sizzler, own star in the end. Norman Carline's dad had owned 50 pubs. These two little blokes called Jack and Bob Ingham, who were the Ingham Chicken family, they all started up a stable in Melbourne down at Morty Alec at Epsom Training Centre. Merv Brown was Dad's big client, and he owned a company called Golden Breed and Hang Ten back in the day. And he was the I one that Hang uh, Ten. Yes, God, yes, that's a blast from the past. Yeah, it was the feet. Remember, it was yes. the, the, the and, and the Golden Breed was the I think it was the uh, like surfwear almost. Yes, and it was the male and female symbol. I think yep. it was the circle with the arrow, and that was Golden me, Breed. That. So Merv Brown was a client, a big client of ours. He had thirty or forty horses with us in Adelaide, and he knew Bob Lapointe well, and had kicked up for Dad to get the job in Melbourne. So Dad had just moved to Melbourne fresh, and I stayed behind. So I stayed behind in the house, and I didn't get paid. Dad said, "Well, this is like you're still at school." So he made me for eighteen months go around and go with the with the, with the saddle maker and uh, bloodstock company, you know, with the, with the horse float company and the vet, the farrier. And I just looked at a whole different range of mm. things. So I ended up going and working for what is now called Magic Millions on the home corner at Morford. And I'd been there for six months. And between six months and 12 months, I'd sold more bloodstock than the main salesman. And he was a bit peed about that. I was getting paid $9,260. And as a kid, you don't forget that stuff. Well, I reckon I was underpaid to bug. So I went to the boss and said, I need a pay rise. So then he rings my dad because he'd had horses with my dad and said, I'm in a bit of a quandary, John. He said, you just leave him to me. He ain't going anywhere. And he gave me the biggest kick up the ass of all time because he said, you're not there for the money. You're there for the uh, for the experience. So I went and did all that stuff. And then, I, and then I'd moved to, uh, to Melbourne to follow where my father. I want to talk about Bob and Jack Ingham. You mentioned yes. them before. So there, there was a pivotal moment, wasn't there, in, the, in yep. the, I guess, the Hawks family journey, if I can call that. I reckon summer of 92, you sent to pick your old man up from Moorabbin Airport. Who, who, who has told you all this He stuff? lands in the private jet. And understandably, you're thinking, where the heck has the old man been? I went to the races at Moe, came home from Moe, and I said to Mum, where's Dad? Because we didn't have mobile phones then. She said, well, I need to talk to you about that. You can grab his car and you can run over to Moorabbin Airport. You drive in, down Smith Street, you know, put up the Melways and had, had to yeah. find where it was. Go down the end, there's a hangar on the left. Just sit there and wait. I said, wait for what? She said, you'll know. I'm not saying nothing. So shook my head, got in the car, walked 
went down there, sat there for 20 minutes. Pretty woman, Richard Gear, when he flies on the Learjet. This is how his Learjet came screaming into the airport. The uh, the steps fold down. John Hawks gets out, says, thanks, boys. Thanks for the lift. See you later. They close the doors, and it screams off again. I mean, it was something like out of the, as I said, out, out of the movies. He walks back through the, uh, the security, gets in the car, and he says, how you going? I said, yeah, I'm good. He said, the horse went good at Maui. I said, yeah, good. I said, forget about that. I said, where the hell have you been? He said, I've been to Sydney for lunch. So he'd gone to uh, Sydney. He came home, spoke to mum, and then he grabbed my brother and myself and said, I went to Sydney with Jack and Bob Inger for lunch. They're not happy with their trainer in Sydney. They've spent 30, 40 million, and back then that's probably worth 200 million today. So use today's term. Spent 200 million on this uh, complex, and it wasn't quite going how they wanted. They owned 6,500 acres in the Hunter Valley, and it wasn't quite going how it should have. They were clients originally from the Melbourne days, so we had an association, and you know, probably their most famous horse was a horse called Waikikamukau. Dad said, Yes, I'll take the job. I remember clearly running down to the TAB with Dad at Morty Alec and watching every race in Sydney because there was no Sky Channel at home. There was no uh, racing.com in those days. This is life-changing stuff, though, isn't it? So can yeah. you put it, people who might not have an appreciation of how big this is, I think someone made the point that it'd be like taking over as the managing director of BHP Billiton, basically. Without doubt, or yeah. Toll, or one of yeah. those massive companies, and it just grew, and there was, long, long story short, there was 113 boxes in Sydney. We had the stable in Melbourne that had 50. We had a stable in Adelaide that held 28, and eventually we built a, a stable in Brisbane that held uh, 45 up there. So on average, when it was at its height, Bob Ingham said he was the maddest stats man of all time. He knew every stat on every horse. He knew every stat on every chicken farm and how many eggs got broken. And he said it was 235 uh, horses in work annually. So, But it grew within itself. So yeah. yes, it was like taking on the uh, managing director of BHP Billiton and stuff like that. I said to Dad, I said, what do you want to do? He said, well, I want to train great horses. I said, there's only one thing about it. I said, you've got to be, you've got to be you and you've been a bit hamstrung, so you need to be you. He said, all I said to Jack and Bob Ingham was, I've been a Mercedes-Benz driver all my life. I don't want, I don't want the Ford Fairlane that you've got as the company car. I'll work my ass off for you. And he said, you just back me. And he said, we'll get the job done. And it was a mutual handshake, and that was how the uh, that was how it went. So they only had the stable in Sydney, but we already had the stable in Melbourne that they owned a quarter of. They bought out the other people. Dad owned the stable in Adelaide. One year in Brisbane, we, we nailed it. We won the Derby, the Oaks. We won 10 group races that Brisbane Winter Carnival over about 8 or 10 weeks. Flavour was it was a great horse that won a two-year-old race and the stretch limo came round the corner. Jack and Sue Ingham, my mum and dad pulled up. They came back to the stables to see the boys because what had happened was Jack Ingham got the race and loved a bet. So my track, he said to my track rider, whoa, we got the favourite day in the Qantas Cup, which is the lead up to the Stradbroke. Yeah, but we're back in the other one, boss. And I've heard this and spun around and gone, oh, okay. Jack Ingham came over to me and said, son, what's going on? Warren just said, you're back in the other one. I went, yeah, we are, boss. 35 to 1 in he was, over pitch, and he's shite in. He won by three, and I and I have clear, vivid memories of seeing Sue Ingham at the members' tote window at Eagle Farm, stashing money into a, into a massive purse. They wiped out the tote window. They wiped out the whole row of tote windows at Eagle Farm. So what happens is they go back to the stable in the, in the stretch limo. Jack Ian walks in and says, boys, girls, well done. Great job. We had two winners today. Well done. What a magnificent day. Here's your little sling. Big man, six foot four. Pulls out the biggest wad of grey nurses hundreds have ever seen. There was thousands of dollars in his 
pocket. He went, oh, wrong pocket. Puts his hand back in, pulls out a wad of 20s, reams off 10 $20 notes and says, here, son, take the boys down the pub for a drink. My dad's behind jacking him, looking, giving me the death stare, going, if you open your mouth and say one thing, he was all over it. So uh, I, my staff had never seen so much money, and he we went, oh, wrong pocket. We are with Wayne Hawks on This Is Your Journey. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. So Lonro, Octagonal, Chautauqua, we'll discuss some of the cream of the Hawks stable right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. Today's guest is renowned trainer Wayne Hawke. So, Wayne, Chautauqua. Yes. When I mention that name. Here we go. It's English and Felsweave fighting it out. Chautauqua very late. It's English, a half length in front. Can he do it? Chautauqua, he's flying. Yes. Tell me that's not one of the greatest moments here at Ramwick. Chautauqua's come from last. So, when I mention the name, I'm just keen to know here, what's the first emotion that lives in you? Is it? Happiness? Is it excitement? Is it frustration? Regret? Love? Or something else? Great adjectives, and I've used I've used and thought of all those adjectives over my line and a few others that we can't say on radio. Because he's obviously the famous horse for being as famous as for being the only sprinter in the world that anyone can remember that's an absolute backmarker and just ripping home. So if you're in the 100 metres of the Olympics and you're 10 metres off them with 20 metres to go, you don't win. Whereas Chautauqua had this mad passion to run home in faster than any horse had ever run before and uh, get the job done. So yeah, my initial, re- and everyone wants to talk to me about him. It's funny, isn't it? And, yeah. and my initial is, oh, but you know what? It's better to have known him and had him than have never had him and only seen him from afar. So that's the plus because he's one of the greatest I've ever touched, and he's one of the greatest sprinters we'll ever we'll ever see. But it didn't finish the way that it should have. But you know what? I mean, it was a Steven Spielberg movie if he had to come back out of the uh, out of nowhere and done the job again. But he he was famous for retiring for a game. No, I'm not. Uh, yeah. I'm not coming out of the barriers, and uh, you know, I mean, he was on non-racing TV shows, and he was all over the news, and it was amazing. The Grey Flash, the Thunder Down Under, yeah. and there's a million other. Yes. The world's best sprinter, yes. some said, he won what nine million in prize money, yes. I think, and then he just decided, did he not, that I'm running done. around a track was for mugs? I'm done. So we'd, 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 we'd take him back home and, and we'd put him in the barriers and he'd just fly it like a gazelle. You'd take him to the farm and kick him out and away he'd go. We'd, Tommy Berry was his main rider and in Sydney we'd travelled anywhere and everywhere and he'd just do the job. As soon as he had to go to be official and let's go, he'd just say, I'm not doing it. So, you have a theory? No, not really. I mean, it was just that he just shut down and I said to Jason Richardson one day, he was on Channel 7 and he said, Chautauqua, I said, yep. I said, he'd be the boy at the back of the bus licking the windows. You know what the truth is? The trainers were the ones at the back of the bus licking yeah. the windows. He was, taking the, he was, was taking the P1 double five. He was at the front of the bus leading the bus, and we were thinking he's a smarty. Well, he was, but he, he, he was actually outsmarting us. Because if you think about it, the average horse weighs 500 to 550 kilos. So power-to-weight ratio, they'd be training us if they knew what they could do, to be fair. So he was a phenomenal horse, and he ended his career and you know in a blaze of poop, really. But the funny part was... No one boo-hooed him for that because everyone laughed and it was funny yeah. and because he'd been such a freaky horse, so it's, you know. What, what was to be, I mean, if anything, what was to be learned at? Did you learn anything out of it or is this one of those things that you just put your hands up in the air and think, it's 
funny when you have a horse that doesn't jump out the barriers, the immediate thought is the grey flash Chautauqua. But, you know, like we never hit him, we never hurt him, we never got a stop with Wonder Women, we never ever did those sorts of things because we never, we've never done that and we will never do that because we're horse lovers, not haters. And if he didn't want to run, he didn't want to run. So we were more than happy just to say mm. enough was enough and let him finish his career in the uh, the blaze of poop. But if he wants to do that, that's what he wants to do. But my father said that maybe it was because he had gut busters everywhere. And if you're down four goals in a preliminary final and you've got to play like that to win every week, you know how hard that is. Mm. And every run he had in the end of his career were gut busters. Self-inflicted, for the record. Mm. But so in the end, he just gave up and went, yeah, no, yeah. I'm... Uh, it's, the late octagonal, the big O, how do you reflect on this horse? Well, you go to race meetings and, uh, you know, there's signs up, you know, death taxes and lawn, you know, lawn road, like that was his son. And, you know, the big O, that's how they started, death taxes yeah. and octagonal. And that went on to his son. And, yeah, he was just a freaky, freaky horse. And Darren Beeman famously, at the start of their four-year-old career, went down to Warwick Farm, the Jack and Bob and John Hawks, and said, I know I'm the son that you blokes never had, but I'm getting off because Bart's got a horse called Saintly and he reckons it's the best horse he's ever trained. And it's going to win the Melbourne Cup. And subsequently it did. And that was the spring that... Uh, the big O came back and he was just not interested at all. he just uh, given up on uh, racing he'd had three runs in three weeks as a three-year-old and won them all and he was just tired and spent. Came back in the spring of his four-year-old, the autumn of his four-year-old career and away he went again and he won uh, group ones after that. So he just had a bit of a purple patch where he wasn't interested and Darren Beeman got it right and picked it. So he was another one that was just a freaky, freaky horse yeah. to uh, have anything to do with. You mentioned Octagonal and the fanfare and almost the hysteria around it and how that might have become a bit too much for the old man. Was was Exhibit A for that the Cox Plate of 95 when it almost looked like it it overwhelmed your father? Yeah, it did. He, he stood there with the wraparound sunglasses like Tom Cruise was wearing and <laughs> only reason he didn't take them off because he was crying. And no yeah. one knew that. He said, this horse is a champion and everyone f- nearly you know, fell off the chair because for John Hawks to rate anything other than, yeah, it was nice, it was fair, yeah, it was good, yeah, happy, that's about what he would say. He was probably an interviewer's, uh, you know, you wouldn't be yeah. happy interviewing him in some respects. He just said, yeah, he's a champion. And he beat Mahogany that day and um, on he went to... Um, to greatness and he went to stud he wasn't the best but he did sire his uh, his greatest son in Lonroe who was an absolute gun and champion to this day, Darren Beedman thinks Lonroe was better than Octagonal, but John Hawkes thinks Octagonal was better than Lonroe. So. so the Black Flash, let's talk about him. More than, I think, $5 million in prize money. How does Lonroe live on? To be fair, that's probably worth 15 or $20 million yeah, well, yeah, in prize is, money today. This is, this is old, school, yes, old school money. Yep. Late 90s, yeah. So how does uh, Lonroe live on with you? Well, he's just been retired at start, and I mean, he was a phenomenal stallion, so he took the dynasty. Octagonal couldn't quite do that, but Lonroe did take the dynasty on because it's a big thrill when you go to a horse sale and, and you've trained dad and you've looked at, you're looking at his sons. You know, it's like it's like the old man that just looks through the window of the newborns back in the old days. You know, you couldn't yeah. go in there, you just look at the pram and point and go, that's mine over there. So it, it is a bit like that, especially when it's their first year of their new kids to come along. You know what I mean? So he was a, he was a great, great horse and it was just great times and, you know, yeah. I'd, what horses like Octagonal would do to them and Lonro would do them. So they, they were like Winks. I mean, they were Winks wasn't better than them. There's yeah. no doubt about that. In, so, in in the race, they'd beat Winks and then she'd beat them. Simple as that. So you got to better not to compare. It's great pub talk, but uh, but that's living, isn't it? That's oh, living. Well, well you, you know what? People work their whole life and they don't get to work with these sorts of horses. All they can do is look at them in the mounting enclosure. Love love the word mounting enclosure. Never thought anything about it. Spendthrift Farm, great Ameri- huge American company, had raced some horses in Adelaide, and I said to Ned, their manager. I said, right, we've settled up. Let's go to the mounting enclosure. He said, the mounting enclosure? What do you mount? 
out there, boy. And I thought, geez, he's actually right. They call it the saddling paddock in America. <laughs> the mounting enclosure. So every time someone says a mounting enclosure, I do have a little... Uh, you little can look at it a few different ways. Yes. <laughs> you are listening to This Is Your Journey, of course. And, uh, it's powered, as always, by the great folk at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Life. So in case it wasn't obvious, our man Wayne Hawks loves a good yarn, and we love hearing them. We might revisit a few after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934, and we've been joined today by trainer Wayne Hawks. Uh, Hawks, as I said before the break, you love a good yarn, and you've got a, a Hall of Fame collection of stories. I just could not let a chat with you go by without mentioning the donut chain Krispy Kreme, which, which I would almost contend you put on the map back in the day. <laughs> You shouldn't laugh at your own your own jokes, but it's, uh, back when Krispy Kreme first came to Australia, they were only in theory in Sydney Airport. So you'd you'd see people at the airport just go and buy dozens of the ice glazed donuts, and yeah. they'd get on the plane, they'd be pushed them into the yeah. compartment there exactly. And uh, I thought I'll bring a dozen over for myself, and might even freeze them. And so I've got the Sydney Airport, gone and bought my dozen, went to sit down, and there's three uh, AWs. Ross Stevenson sitting there, had been in Sydney for the weekend with his children, and he said, "What do you got there?" I said, "Well, you can't get them in Melbourne." and it was all brand new and I said he said, oh, he said I wonder why everyone was carrying these things thinking what are they liquid gold or something so I ate one I ate two I ate three I ate four I ate five and the plane was late which was a big mistake because I ate them all and then a I, dozen a dozen then I got up and walked over the bin and, and I just sitting there like I'm chatting to you now just chatting to Ross about life and horses and stuff because Ross's a mad horse racing man ate them all good as gold no problems got yeah. in the plane didn't sit next to each other got off the other end said goodbye grabbed my bag went home constipation 101 just came in and that just uh, cured me and I won't lie, I don't listen to 3AW. Anytime Krispy Kreme comes up, Ross just calls me the unofficial ambassador for Krispy Kreme's racehorse trainer, Wayne Hawks. The phone will go ding, ding, ding. No, they're bloody great. And and please, go and, if you haven't tried them, go and try them. But only have two. Don't have 12 like me. What about COVID? There's no protecting. That was a tough time, no, including for your industry as well. Yeah, it was a very, very tough time. And we were the only show in town. I mean, it was great. I mean, I had people overseas text me going, what am I back in tomorrow? Because, yep. you know, racing shut down all all around the world. But in Australia, it, it, it kept going. And we only lost two days. I think we lost one and a half. Is that right? That was all we lost. I think they we had one day. Well, one day. The first day was Mooney Valley. Because I remember when it all happened. Another day there, Mark Zara had a bit of a scare. Because he'd been in Sydney with Hugh Bowman and Tommy Berry. And there was a thought. And I reckon they might have run three races then cancelled Sandown. Could be wrong, but it was that sort of theory, right? So we only lost a, we only lost a day and a half racing. We trained. It was quite amazing. I mean, I'd drive down Epsom Road and there were those, remember those towers mm-hmm. that where, where the people were locked in and, and was Racecourse oh, yeah. Road, Epsom Road. It was horrendous. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I mean, I'd drive down the road and I'd just get near there and near, near the showgrounds and I'd just put my window up. I don't know what the hell I was doing, but you just, you can't help but think, oh, and those poor people that were locked in. We got through it. Can I can I tell you one funny story? Well, of course. Hey, look, we're all about revisiting old 
old yarns. Right next to the showgrounds, uh, they took a part of the showgrounds away and they turned it into a Coles complex on Epsom Road, uh, Ascot Vale. So I went in there one day while COVID's on, and I'm standing in the line, and I'm a bit of a shit stirrer if, if you haven't worked that out. So Mooney Valley have got this magnificent restaurant that they was an old tote building, and they've called it the Tote Restaurant. And if you haven't been there, you should go, because yeah. it's very, very brand new. Michael Brow's not at Mooney Valley Racecourse, so what happens is I um, go to Mooney Valley on the Friday night, text him and said, where are you, mate? This is the CEO. He said, I don't have COVID. I've got food poisoning. Wow, good as gold, no problem. So I'm back at Flemington the next day. Boys are at Flemington. And uh, long story short, I might have told a couple of officials at Flemington that um, old mate at Mooney Valley had uh, been to the Tote restaurant and he'd got food poisoning. Just stirring, jokingly. All, all, the, all the racing officials went to this party the following Tuesday night and could have been a CEO of Flemington, probably an ex-former Fremantle uh, CEO, Steve Rossage. No names here. And Steve, I'm sure it was Steve, might have mentioned about this... Uh, Tote restaurant and getting crook. Would you imagine how that went down, right? I'm in the Coles there at the race course. Coles, and I'm walking up and down the aisle, and the phone rings. Oh, it's Michael Brow. Go, Michael. It was 9.06. I'll never forget it. 9.06 on the Monday morning. Michael, how are you, mate? Yeah, good, thanks. Good, thanks. No, I'm not good. So, mate, what's wrong? Did you say something to the VRC and rah, 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 and they made in front of other people and rah, 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 rah. This is absolutely truth. I've gone, oh, Michael, gee whiz, you know. Yeah, I can't tell a lie. I've uh, I've gone and done that. Yep, no problems at all. Good as gold, good as gold. And I'm walking up and down the up and down the aisles. And th- this is this is very nuts, but it was row eight. And I'll tell you why in a second. <laughs> so I'm in row eight and I'm on the phone going, listen, listen, come on. Jokes, mate. Jokes, jokes. It's all good. It wasn't your restaurant, the tote window. I'd been there. I said, it's fantastic. It actually genuinely is good, right? Anyway, I smoothed that over with him, I think. And uh, I hang up the phone. I turn around, the bloke is up the other end of the aisle, and they, like this is this is there's no one there. But it's quiet. The bloke goes, "Hey, what are you doing, mate?" I said, "What do you mean? What am I doing?" And you know when you you, you could be driving on the phone, you don't even know what you've done the last thirty k's. And I, I'm in I'm in Coles walking around pushing the trolley, and I've got no idea. I said, "What are you talking about?" He goes, "Look what's in your hand, mate." I went, "Yeah, a dozen eggs." What's your point? He goes, "No, you've just touched them all." Because what you do is you open the lid and you get your two fingers yeah, and yeah. you run them down to make sure that one of them is not broken. Because yeah, yeah. when you get home, you get into trouble because you've you know yeah. one or two are broken. Of so I've just gone do 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 close the lid and put it back because there was one broken. And I'm on the phone squaring off about this uh, you know food poisoning. And the bloke goes, mate, what are you doing touching it? It's COVID. You're, you're kidding yourself? I said, oh, mate, I said, get a life, will you? I said, fair dinkum. I said, I'm not buying cracked eggs. So I grabbed another one, did that. And he looked at me and went, oh, you're just a disgrace. And you know what? You're a shit horse trainer as well. <laughs> <laughs> True story. I don't know who this bloke is. I couldn't remember him in a one-man lineup. Love it. What a great line that was. Uh, a little drive-by to go on with, but I'm with you. Mum taught me that years ago. You've got to check to see if there's a crack in there. Of course you do. I, and I wasn't thinking And I, quite often there is, mind I, you. Yeah, well, there was this day, and he's watched me do it. I didn't know who this bloke was, but what a great punch. COVID line. times. They were crazy times. A, it's a pretty interesting time, too. Fascinating time, even, to be doing what you are doing, because there's a lot of competition for eyeballs, for attention, and the way people spend their money. There's a lot of sport in Melbourne, in Sydney, and across the country. So the push to make racing more attractive to a younger audience, where are you with that? Where does the industry sit right now, do you think? To speak of our great man at SEN, Jared Waitley, I mean, we, we were a bit like, oh, big bash coming into the racing yeah. and whatever. Mic'd up jockeys and yeah, trainers and uh, pieces. Don't like that because of the uh, being careful and uh, not, not you know because of injury and stuff like that. The Grand Prix drivers are used to having someone in their ear the whole time. And I explained this on Waitley. I said, at the start of a Grand Prix, they are not going, do this. Do that, do that. There's, there's silence, isn't there? Because the first minute is carnage. Yep. 
The best part of the race is the start, let's be honest. Well, that's a, that's a horse race, isn't it? So you don't really want them mic'd up. Mm. But as Jared said to me, he said, if it costs them $10 million to put on this series at Mooney Valley and it works, is it money well spent? And the answer is, of course it is. What are we going to do to get fans back? Because the average age of fans is probably getting older, not younger. So how do we engage the fans and we get them back? And I like it being called fans, not punters, because there's a lot of people, and there's a lot of people in my industry that are not punters. I swear, Black Caviar won every race start. If I'd backed her once, she would have got beat. I'm the worst punter you've ever, ever seen. I genuinely am. People listening that I've given a tip to, they probably think the same thing as well. Bottom line is, we, we need to engage the fans but I think what we need to do is we need to start at school level. Because when I was a kid, racing, stock market, it was punting to a point. And now you've got all your betting agencies that bet on any type of football, any type of sport. So it's it's accepted. And I'm sure there are families out there that say it's not acceptable. And it's not. But the bottom line is, in our industry, you don't have to punt to love the horses. You could be a float driver, a horse physio, the dentist, a chiropractor. Hmm. You could be an office girl working for the feed merchant. You're in the racing industry, but you don't have to be a uh, don't have to be a punter, but we need to get the fans there. Caulfield Guineas to Melbourne Cup week, that's our time because as you know, as a journalist, things go very quiet. And the year 2023, November, is really a dead month. And you people are going to have to yeah. <laughs> do a lot of hard... No, you are. You're laughing because you know what I'm about yeah. to say. You're yeah. going to have to do a lot of hard work. Got to get creative. Well, yep. you do because there's not much around. So we're going to be one of the only big sports in town. So I'm not sure how we get fans involved, but we are losing... We're losing generations. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why we are losing generations. And that's because of things like work cover and OH&S. I, watched, I quickly watched a, uh, a YouTube on a guy, and, he's, and, and he was a son of a big trucking magnet in Queensland. He said, well, when I was a kid, I jumped on the truck with Dad, and I was on the forklift, and I was strapping down stuff on the back of the truck, and we'd drive interstate, and away we'd go. And he said, now, my kids come. He said, they've got to follow the yellow line in the office. They've got to sign in. They can go to the boardroom of my office, and that's it. He said, my kids don't even know what I do. And I thought, wow, that's me when I was a kid at Morpherville, walking around with the saddle when I was 10 years of age, standing on the other side of the horse, helping my dad saddle my, my, my kids can't do that until they get to I think 15 years of age so yeah. we are losing generations of our own let alone outside people coming in so we need to go to schools and things like this and promote the hell out of our industry that we are because I tell you one thing and this is guaranteed a thousand thousand percent not many guarantees in this life you get any kid to come down to my stable and any other stable especially the girls they lose it when they see the horses those kids are like putty in your hand so they love the animal so you can see where the riding for the disabled and all these great charities get these kids to come along and they get on a horse and these famous stories where the kids haven't spoken forever and they start talking or murmuring and the horse is an unbelievable animal and we are in it because we love the horse we're really not in it for the punt so we need to get young bums on seats and we need to tell everyone that we are not a not, we're not a punting industry is there a punt involved of course there is but you can punt on anything i mean you know whether it's bathurst or the grand prix at you know albert park i mean we can we can bet on everything if we want to today kids are betting on uh, gaming now that's the new next craze of people betting on gaming so stop saying that it's all about the punt for the racing industry and let's push the horse the animal sub-zero the melbourne cup winner what he did walk into those schools and hospitals and for the people that don't know that horse could go in a lift 
and he can go up six flights of stairs and he's been in a Crown Palladium and all these places <laughs> and he's been all over Australia in the weirdest of wonderful places. Special horse to do that. I wouldn't like to take Chautauqua in a lift. We might uh, come back with a see-through lift, but you get my point. <laughs> Wayne Hawks, what a journey, mate. And it's still going. I mean, the racing industry has been so lucky to have your family's involvement. You've been great for it and it for you. You've achieved so much in, in your own right. Just love the path you have travelled, mate, and the perspective as well that you have on the racing industry. You're a great friend of SEN. Well done in everything you've done, and, and thanks for sharing your story with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Wayne Hawkes there. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Jump online. You can find them, tobinbrothers.com.au, and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey.